if I shout. Welcome to the Must Follow podcast from StockTwits. I'm your host, Sean McLaughlin. You can follow me on StockTwits at ChicagoSean. StockTwits is the leading social network for investors and traders. You can download our app on iOS or Android or visit us on the web at StockTwits.com. At StockTwits, we believe you don't need to be a Wall Street insider to make money. We believe real investors working together can gain a discernible edge. The Must Follow podcast introduces you to interesting members of the StockTwits community who are honing their craft on a daily basis. If you haven't failed yet, you're going to fail hard. You know, that's the, I, I see that now. If you ever have a portfolio manager who hasn't yet been through a bear market or hasn't experienced failure at some point, then you don't want to be invested with him when he experiences it for the first time ever. And I've had a lot of failure. That is why I feel I know what I know. I don't say I know everything, but I, I know what works for me. I've seen enough through my own trading what does and doesn't work, and I've seen it through trading on behalf of hedge funds and institutions and for working for PMs too. Today's guest, John Borman, is one of my favorite community members on StockTwits. John employs a strategy that can be embraced both by professionals who understand winning edges as well as those new to trading who can easily wrap their heads around his simple and common sense approach. But John will be the first to tell you that simple certainly does not equal easy, and we'll get into all his reasons why, the most important of which is failure is the unpleasant reality of success. Of all the things to learn from a man who handles himself in the markets like John Borman, an underappreciated aspect is to avoid total immersion. We can all agree that there can be benefits of committing yourself wholly to the cause of learning how to be a master of your craft, but there's a fine line between productive immersion and total immersion to the detriment of all other areas of your life that are required to keep you balanced as a human. How does John keep his life balanced? We'll start there. Did you ever have a rock star long ass hair? No. No? Because, no, because in fact, the, how long my hair is now is about the longest it's ever been. Oh, man. I, I had these, like, visions of you having hair down in the middle of your back, like just a really gruff beard. No, you see, it's, it. it's, only, it's only now that I feel that I can do it without, without being judged or without having a boss, being my own boss. It's like, yeah, this is – okay, now, now I can uh, have it how I want to have it. <laughs> but but now when, I, when I was younger, I was always – uh, when I had a band uh, in the early 90s, and but at the same time I had my job as like head of desk on on the buy side, so you had to really toe that line of still being serious and looking professional and all the rest of it, even though you wanted to, you know, so it'd be a little bit rebellious at the same time. So you could you couldn't wear your Rolling Stones T-shirt to work. No. <laughs> I, I could definitely not do that. Those in those days, everything was still suits all the time. It wasn't until much later you could even remotely get get away with casual Friday, whatever they called it. <laughs> Did your coworkers know that you had this uh, alternate lifestyle where you were rocking out on weekends? Oh yeah, I I made I I mean I did. Um, it it was it was good for me because I do come across to people as being very introverted and uh, which I which I am generally um, but so that's a totally different side of 
my character and there's a lot of people who never got to see it and it'd be like, oh my god, I can't believe it's the same guy. It's like you know, there, there's is this anal anal person who's suddenly now up on stage, uh, <laughs> singing and everything. Um, but yeah, no, that 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 was good. I've I used to abuse in my position totally with uh, brokers as well because I think I I kind of went through a phase where I said, okay, unless you turn up to my next gig, you're not getting any more orders. Oh or, man, uh, that's beautiful. And I think that was one of the best one of the best uh, gigs we ever had. There was a pub called The Swan in Fulham Broadway in London. And uh, I think I sold 140 tickets, which, which for a little band like ours was a huge thing because we got the door, basically. We got, you got to keep all the door. So um, that, was, uh, that was a decent paying gig for us. <laughs> and, they, and they had a good time. They're all, up, they're all there you know, to have a good time, so it was good. Well, I've uh, you've shared you've graciously shared with me a few YouTube clips of your band, and from what I've seen, I could see that they would have a good time. You guys look like you rock, and uh, I'd love to see you live sometime. We're, yeah, we can definitely do that. <laughs> maybe maybe we could talk Howard into letting your band play at Stocktoberfest one of these years. Uh, he might not be able to afford me. I don't know. <laughs> Did you start playing? Uh, I mean, in, in your band, you don't play any instruments, right? You're just the singer. Yeah, I'm just the singer. I mean, I don't mean to say just the singer. No, I know. No, I say that. But that is true because I really don't do anything else. I guess I play tambourine not very well. But, have you yeah. ever Have you ever played any instruments? No. I've, I've flirted with the idea a few times, but uh, maybe I don't have the dedication it takes to do it. And Did you ever, like, uh, take piano lessons as a child because your parents made you, go to, <laughs> made you go to these classes? No, not at all. In fact, I mean, I actually got into, I got into that quite late it wasn't until maybe i want to say i was maybe like uh 16 uh 17 or something it was only then i really started getting into uh music and i used to watch all these repeats of uh reruns of um a 60s show called ready steady go and they'd show things of the beatles and the stones and when i saw the stones and especially what jagger was doing it was like oh man it was like that is what I want to do. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty surprising because you you know you described yourself earlier as somebody who's rather introverted, uh, and generally being the lead singer of a rock band, even if it's a cover band, uh, generally does not attract the introverted types. It's just a very it, it's a totally different side uh, to to someone's character. I think I'm not see I'm not even sure it's easy to say well, you know you're introverted and that's it. I think there are just um, other aspects of it that go much much deeper. And I know there are. I mean I think there's people like Peter Gabriel um, who was also notoriously shy, and he then would go on on stage in these costumes, which was maybe as a member of Genesis, which was. Um, a way for him to then hide behind that, but then get this reaction. And I kind of, although I haven't ever got into doing anything like that, I kind of like that idea of the potential of shock value when you're up there. Um, but, you know, these days you can't do anything without it looking crass and offensive because it's all been done before. And it just looks pretty boorish if you get some 40-year-old uh, guy, you know, acting like a teenager. So... <laughs> <laughs> I keep it respectable now. 
Well, uh, there's a part of me that's extremely jealous that, that you're still rocking out on a regular basis because I, I too played in bands when I was younger. I played in a, in a heavy metal cover band in high school. Uh, and then in, when I was in college, I played in a you know more traditional rock and roll band. And uh, uh, man, I, I miss those days. Uh, we, we never played quite regularly like you do. I mean, I think in total between those two bands, I probably pay, played uh, less than 15 gigs, but... But man, those were fun times, I'll tell you. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, bridging the gap between uh, the music and the markets, uh, you know, who are some people uh, when you grow up, John, <laughs> who do you who do you want to be? It could be anybody from finance, from music, from from Hollywood, whatever. Uh, is there anybody out there that you just wish you could be when you grow up? Uh, well, I guess, you know, I. I I said already on the music front, um, the example of uh, the Stones and Mick Jagger. I always had a fascination with um, with that whole side of things, but I knew that that's that's quite a big leap. <laughs> that's not something I could uh, you know do without a lot of uh, sacrifice and extreme talent. Neither of which uh, I had at the time, and um, I I mean I pretty much decided I wanted to keep that side of my life going but I also knew I wanted to uh, get into finance but I'm not sure I really had any heroes in the in the arena early on because it took me it's taken me quite a while to to get to where I am now to to be doing what I'm doing I've kind of gone all the way around the whole industry buy side and sell side and uh, I was just—I think I was fortunate that I worked for some really good companies in London that had some real professional people who were just—these um, are like career, you know, people. They'd been at the bank, you know, twenty, twenty-five years, and kind of would teach you everything you know. And for some reason, whether it's something about me or them, I seem to attract mentor-type people. And I'm grateful for that. Or maybe it's just that I show a curiosity and, and I'm willing to learn. So I would say those kind of people, in a way, you know, became your heroes along the way. And so I, I, what I, I, would just, I would finish that by just saying what I particularly love now is that in this day and age with social media, you can then you can actually get to connect with people like that in, in a way that years ago, you never even have a chance of meeting them. You know, now you can be having messages and conversations with people, which is just incredible to me. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, you know, today with Twitter and StockTwits and all the other social media channels that are out there, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I've been fortunate enough to meet many people, some of whom were, you know, trading heroes of mine while I was coming up in the business. And some are people like yourself who I never would have ever heard of or met had it not been for social media. And, and guys like you are just, you know, great guys that are doing stuff that I like and I can learn from. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's been a game changer for me. And I, and I imagine for a lot of other people out there. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, when you said, uh, so your, your first experience in the markets, uh, you were working at a, a big bank in London. How did you get into that? Was this uh, were you in college and you got recruited for this job? You thought you wanted to be in finance somewhere, or was there is there a different backstory to that? 
Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, this is going back some time, and I, I was very, very young. I mean, you you leave you leave school and college there a lot earlier than you do here, and um, I I went. In fact, I can. This is almost. Um, is it to the day? I think it's uh, 30, 30 years to the day. I went for an interview on my. I think it was like my sixteenth birthday. And uh, it was with the um, police department in the criminal investigation department, the CID <laughs> department, as a um, trainee fingerprint searcher. Oh, wow. I always had a fascination with uh, crime and, in, and investigation. And um, I got shortlisted down to about from a list of 12 down to three, and I didn't get it. And I was absolutely crushed i i had set everything on that 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 was my future that is what i was going to be i always thought that i was going to work in law enforcement and um i really really was devastated my mother then through a work colleague found out about this course at the local college that was about getting a diploma in business studies and finance and it was like it was a fallback for me that this is what you should do. Like, and I knew I probably, if I didn't do police work, I would want to do something on the business side. And uh, I did it. And there were various components, law, insurance, banking. I just seemed to do very well at it. You would have these assignments of, um, you know, I would just keep getting A's on all these assignments in banking. I didn't on anything else, but I did with banking. It just seemed to work well for me. And then we had this assignment where you had this sum of money, you got to invest in the stock market over the next six months. Let's see who makes the most. And I don't know if I did make the most of everyone, but I did extremely well. And it fired me with a love for it. And it was like, this is what I should be doing. Ah, so you, so you had that kind of epiphany moment. Yeah, I mean, I I changed my mind in a matter of uh, a year or so, uh, you know, because I didn't want to have to wait around to be eighteen to uh, to uh, join the regular force. But um, yeah, that that was that was a big deal to me. I had um, family member who worked in the financial industry as well, so uh, they gave me some guidance there. And I just, I, I mean, in those days. I mean, so I, I feel so old saying this, always having to say about how it used to be back then. But it really was. You know, there's no email. There's no internet. You had to write letters to people. You had um, no idea if anyone ever got anything until you got something back. Uh, you couldn't uh, – I, I had to send out like 50 applications to all different brokers and uh, different investment firms. And I got – I think I only got three back, uh, two of them – gave me an interview both on the same day and one of them on the day offered me the job and I wasn't even sure exactly what it was I would be doing and when I got there I was uh, a clerk in the back office but that was it I was in you were uh, in that's all I, I was in and I just started working my way up and it took me a while to realize okay this is not where I want to be going forward and um, I ended up having to go to night school, I guess you'd call it, to get some extra qualifications to then get a job in the fund management arm. 
and became an assistant to a portfolio manager. And, uh, and then I used to handle all the trades for them, take them up to the trading room. And then eventually I got moved up to the trading room because I think I must have shown a particular aptitude for that kind of that kind of work or else they just didn't want me working on the floor anymore. <laughs> but, but, um, but that was it really. And then from, and then from there I was, um, placing all the trades on behalf of, for, it was for all their trading in Japan and the far East. And, and, and this was for Schroeder's, which, uh, is massive, um, asset manager in, in the UK. And, and this is when I'm 22. So w when I look back now, I mean, it's just absolutely absurd amount of um, responsibility that someone could have at such a young age. I mean, did you have any discretion in entering and executing those orders or was it just a matter of uh, here's an order executed? Uh, you know, you're just kind of like you're the messenger, so to speak. Partially you did. Yes. I mean, you, you had some discretion in, in which brokers they go to uh, a, an incredible weapon. <laughs> and and uh, and yes, sometimes in in working the order, sometimes some fund managers would put uh, limits on things and had a very strong idea about how they wanted to do it. Uh, but I mean, joking aside, I mean, I think I think I had earned getting that position, and I worked very hard thereafter too. And it was, um, I mean, it was a it was a big job, and it was pretty stressful, but it had its um, perks and benefits as well and I've said before I'm sure the brokers were salivating at the prospect of uh, courting a uh, you know 20 something guy who had that kind of discretion right and uh, you know I was an impressionable young man and it was uh, it was good time <laughs> as we all were at that age was there a transition a noticeable transition that you went through from that point in your life to where you started getting your ideas about becoming a trend-following trader? Like, how did that all evolve? No, that's much later. That was still much later. I, I mean, I could quickly try and go through. I, I mean, basically, after that, it, it was realizing that the institution I was within, you know, when, you, when you've got people who have been there all their life, the, the head job is dead man's shoes, as we say. I mean, you, you're just not going to get it until the, the guy pops his clogs. So... You're, you know, you then had to leave. It makes people who are young and ambitious leave. And um, I was very fortunate to get asked to set up a trading desk in London for Kemper and move all their international trading over to London. And, Ke and they went through a series of mergers and stuff, and they later became uh, Zurich and Scudder. And then that was doing global trading and FX and everything. So... Um, that was really, and, and again, that was a big, big deal for me because that was when I was only 25 and I was still very, I, I've had this a lot throughout my life and, st and, and until very recently also that I'm always very nervous about making a change and um, I'll seek the advice of a lot of people and then when I've done it, you look back and you think, God, what was I worried about? <laughs> You know, you then just settle into the role straight away and you realize, you know, you were perfectly capable of that role. And then it wasn't until um, turn of the century going to Lehman. Then I went to the, so that was on the sales side, being a sales trader, whole different set 
of skills there and then later a prop trader for them as well. And it was really leaving that job that um, shaped, it was the beginning of what I do now. And so now we're up to 2004 when Lehman let me go. It, it was when I left that position. I Were you in the States by now? No, that was a year later. Okay. But it, it, it was, I was trying to work out what I was going to do. Was I going to uh, find another job, work for someone else? I really went into quite an introspective period of, of doing an awful lot of uh, research and reading. And that's when I first got into reading all the Market Wizard books, uh, Van Tharp, Trend Following. That's when I first started reading all about that and getting my thoughts straight about what is it I truly believe in. I felt like I needed to deconstruct everything and start over because I felt like I'd lost my way. Uh, I mean, I did okay as a prop trader, but it was just horribly uh, managed. I mean, I had some great uh, managers immediately above me, but sometimes some of the other stuff from high and above, they would just um, cut everyone's book in half because something just happened. And, it, you know, it was just totally indiscriminate and without any consideration of what the individual people might be doing and um, they started me off very small I did really well with not very much capital and then of course they absolutely ramped it up and um, and then I didn't do so well with that which would have still been good as on a percentage basis but on a nominal basis you then lost it and it was that kind of thing so I learned a lot but with all these examples when I look back on it now and even for some fund managers I've worked for. I've worked for some great ones, but I've also worked for some that weren't so good. You learn what not to do just as much as you learn what to do. And those are really the key lessons for me. I've, I've learned more from those kind of things, but you don't like to highlight that to people. Sure. It's a, it's a bit like you learn more from your losses than you do your wins. Uh, um, I, I agree with that 100%, and uh, that's that's certainly been my experience. Now, when you take me back to that 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 time at, at Lehman when they when you mentioned that you had done really well, and then they ramped you up significantly, why do you think you struggled at that point? Was it uh, a psychological thing that you just couldn't wrap your head around these larger numbers, or was your trading strategy impacted by the larger position sizes? Hmm. I want to say it's a bit of both. It might sound like a cop-out, but it, it was um, – I think it really was. I mean, it's hard for me to even remember what my strategy really was, and that, that kind of tells you how <laughs> crazy it was. I mean, I remember one of the three bosses I had in 18 months when I was uh, introduced to him. Someone brought me over and was like, hey, so-and-so, this is Johnny. Uh, I don't know what he does, but he's really good at it. <laughs> and that was, that's it. Like, okay. I mean, this is just ridiculous. The, yeah. and, but, but that was the kind of environment because as long as you were making money, they didn't care. They didn't ask any questions. Right. It's only suddenly once you're losing, it's like, okay, what's going on here? You know, so why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? It's, it, then you suddenly get the examination of um, what it is you do. 
Uh, I, I don't. Yeah, the the numbers ramping up probably did did make uh, did have some impact because the the bottom line is you were always you always knew that you're going to get paid a percentage of what you make, and when those numbers ramp up, that's great. But then you're also aware, acutely aware of the fact that you know if you're not doing well. The numbers get really scary. Shit, I'm not getting paid this year. <laughs> well, I, I think this—I think this is a very important topic because there are a lot of people out there who, you know, maybe come into trading a different way than you did. Maybe they—they're self-starters. They've, you know, maybe they've joined a, a, a prop firm like an SMB Capital or something like that, where you know they start out managing small amounts—a hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars—and. If those people, just like you, if they're doing really well at a small number and then all of a sudden somebody 10Xs their capital or more, uh, you know, it's all of a sudden it's a completely different game for a lot of reasons, for psychological reasons, as you just mentioned. Uh, sometimes uh, you're, it's harder to get fills on your trading strategy, depending on what products you're trading. Uh, and that has an impact on your results. And I think that you see a lot of people who have this fascination of, building a track record, trading small, and then going out and becoming a CTA or starting a hedge fund or joining a prop desk and just having all of a sudden going from managing a $100,000 personal account to managing a million dollars. And they think, oh, I'm going to trade exactly the same. It's going to be great. I'm going to make 10 times the money. But it's not. It's rarely that easy. I'm, I'm much more comfortable, me personally, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to go from trading a hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars, I want to earn that way up to a million dollars because that means you're getting there incrementally, slowly, and everything about you is adjusting the whole way. You're adjusting your psychological triggers, and you're adjusting your position sizing, and you're adjusting your execution strategies, and it's all very gradual. But you know, people get impatient; they want to get there as fast as possible. And the trouble is, you're also operating under other people's. Uh, rules that the rules can, of the game can change at any time if suddenly everything gets you know you're told everyone has to halve their book overnight and that's at a pivotal point in your strategy because you're doing something different to everyone else it, it's just I mean listen I'm very grateful for the opportunity I had at the time because I actually had quite a privileged mandate as a generalist I didn't have a specific sector uh, it was you know, I, I could trade any European stock I wanted to pretty much. And then I also had a futures uh, portfolio as well where I'd play either the U.S. or most mostly Eurostox futures. But I don't particularly remember that, me being any good at that, I have to say. <laughs> Eurostox was brutal. Well, John, every time you and I talk, I feel like I learn something new that you and I have in common or similar. And so now there's a new thing that I've just learned in that when you left Lehman or were forced out of Lehman, whatever that case was, around 2003, that's when you said you kind of went through that introspective period where you started reading Van Tharp and learning about trend following. Uh, it's funny because I, too, around that exact same time is when I got really into trend following. I, uh, a friend of mine introduced me virtually, not in person, but introduced me to Michael Covell and his whole trend following thing and exposing the turtles and all that. And I was like, I found that stuff so fascinating. I yeah. just was, I t deeply immersed myself in all that. I reread all the Market Wizards books that had any interviews with any of those turtle trader guys. And for three years, I just was 
doing demo accounts of practicing trend following strategies. And it eventually became the basis for the commodities hedge fund that I opened a very small one uh, in 2003, I believe it was, and traded for almost two years. Uh, and that was the basis of my strategy and it worked really well. So I, I think it's funny that you and I kind of went through that period at the, kind of at the same time I, 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 for very different reasons. Yeah. But to your credit, you've stuck with it. To me, my credit, I've uh, bounced around strategies a million times since then. <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was great for me moving uh, here in North Carolina because I then got to go to, I got to attend uh, one of Van Tharp's courses because he's here in uh, Cary. And um, that was, I mean, that was good for me. That really was uh perfect perfect follow on from having read all that material uh because that's really what brought it home to me deconstructing how and why something works in terms of a system um you know have, having already from having read his material and others already decided that that was what i needed a systematic pro approach and that i would be uh, or a rules based approach like that would be very suitable for me yeah, I've always been attracted to rules-based trading for many reasons. The, the first and foremost being that when I trade dis fully discretionary and, and emotionally, I'm just a disaster. <laughs> I need to have a framework from which to execute trades. And uh, trend following was really my first uh, exposure to that. And uh, on, on, on nearly every level, it made sense to me. And, uh, you know, that kind of brings us to the next point about trend following is, as simple as it can be, for some for one reason or another, people, a lot of people just seem to have such a hard time executing and staying with a simple strategy like trend following. Why do you think that is? Is do you think people just get scared off with the first drawdown or, or is there something deeper there? Uh possibly. I mean the the first hurdle is even just getting to that point because there's so many that just feel something so simple can't possibly work it can't you know it, it just can't be this simple that this is all i need to do and then you discover why yeah when you when you go through those drawdowns or um even if you don't have a problem uh cutting losses i actually think the some people from from the feedback i get from people they seem to have a harder time running winners and uh, it doesn't matter how good you are at cutting losses, as, as great an attribute that is, if you also don't let those winners run, then they're not going to pay for all those losses. Yeah. I, I have a small theory that I run with that, uh, for, that I think is that one of the big reasons why people don't stick with a trend-following strategy through the hard times, I think it's because people have a hard time sizing positions properly yeah and then when they get into that uh you know rapid pullback in a, in a position that they they're in and maybe they're too big and all of a sudden it just gets super emotional and they get freaked out and that's when the trouble hits so uh i'm curious to know do, do you have a, a science to how you size your positions is it strictly based on uh equity size of your account or is it based on volatility how do you do that yeah that and this is one of to me this is one of the most important uh, parts of any system and that that was the real takeaway from all the stuff I've read on Van Tharp I mean that's really what he's renowned for it's his work on position sizing and having attended one of his courses I've seen it in the room when he does this 
marble game where you're already told about if people don't already know, they can read up about uh, R multiples and distributions. But basically, you think of it as he has a bunch of the marbles are a bunch of trades where you know the result of the trade and he'll pull them out one by one. All you're told is that it's a winning system, that it makes X per year. And you then have a sum of cap, uh, capital and you have to size the trades beforehand. You know, so it's like, okay, how much do you want to risk on this one? I'm going to risk 1%. You pull out the marble, okay, that's a 3R winner. So in other words, you made three times what you risked. And then you might have a 2R loss and then another 1R loss, another loss, another loss. Now you've got a 5R winner. And you go through like that and in a room of about 20 traders um, doing this game, we had, I think, two or maybe three that went bankrupt. We had uh, one guy that made nearly 50% and most kind of fell in the 10 to 15% range. I was in there too, of uh, who, who basically had already done their homework and already knew that if I just consistently size this exactly the same every time, because uh, I've already been told it's a it's a winning thing, I'll I'll come out. Um, you know, I should be okay after enough um, rolls of the dice, if you like, or rather the marbles. Um, so it it really emphasised that that just shows you here's something where everyone had the exact same system, the exact same trades. But what was the one difference they all had? Their own input, it was how much they could bet. It was their position size. And they all come out with those entirely different set of uh, incredible distribution of final returns. So it's th that's when it became clear to me that you can have, you can give someone a winning system and they will find a way to lose money trading <laughs> it if they are not also position sizing correctly. So it's one of the most important aspects. I mean, I can, do you want me to walk through an example of how I would size something? Absolutely, that'd be great. I mean, I, I kind of do this in, in um, what I show on my blog, but to, to use a basic example, if we've, if we've got a, a $100,000 portfolio and you want to risk um, half a percent so that's uh, that's just five hundred dollars. That's and when I say that risk, that's that basically means the expressed as a percentage of the portfolio. So if I buy a stock at twenty dollars and its stop is at eighteen, uh, the stop is ten percent away. But I only want to risk five hundred dollars of my account. So five hundred divided by the two dollars from the last price to the stop is 250 shares, 250 shares times $20, $5,000. So we're risking half a percent, the stop is 10% away, and it takes up 5% of our capital. And then you use other examples where, say if the last price is at $50, the stop is at 46, you'd end up buying 125 shares, which is 62.50, it's 8% to the stop, but that's now 6.25%. Or if you've got an even tighter stop where the stop is only 5% away, you buy something at 40, stop is at 38, 
Uh, you then that's 500 divided by two. You buy 250 times 40 is ten thousand dollars. Right. So, so the magic of what you're doing basically says that all of these individual trades that you're doing of different priced stocks. It doesn't matter if it's a hundred dollar stock, a five hundred dollar stock, or a ten dollar stock. When you get your when you hit your stop. The impact to the portfolio will be identical in theory, of course, not assuming yes. gaps or trade throughs or whatever. Yeah. The key is you equal risk. You don't equal weight. Right. And so many people will look at it as, oh, I've got $100,000. I want to have 20 positions. So I'll just put 5% in each one. And here, in just even the three examples I gave there, you've got one that took up 5% of capital, another one that took up 10 it's twice the size, but it's risking the same amount. Right. You don't want to be putting 5% of your portfolio in Netflix and then the other 5% in AT&T and assume that they're going to have the same volatility impact on your portfolio. Exactly. And and in C, and that's a, although I don't strictly use volatility-based position sizing, that, that is effectively exactly what, what we'd be doing here where the way I determine the stop is where I believe the trend is invalidated for my time frame or like I say, where I'm wrong, um, that could just as easily be a, an ATR uh, volatility point. And uh, very often, it does coincide similarly to that, that where something is invalidated will be commensurate with that. So, but going through those examples, you can see that that's just, like that's three we did there, and that's already used up 20, more than 20% of your capital. So you go through that process, you suddenly find after a dozen positions, you've probably used up all your capital. And that's unless you're using margin or anything. And I mean, I, I just do everything with uh, no margin or lever uh, leverage, long only, trend following stocks, and it's a highly concentrated portfolio. So I end up typically with 12 to 15 positions. And also bear in mind, this is the other thing, that's risking just half a percent. And I'm pretty sure that is small compared to many people that might be listening to this who most people are even taught, you know, in market wizard stuff that, oh, yeah, it's one percent, you know, like that's the standard and maybe up to two or three. I mean, I don't even do that. I'm doing half. But the reason is because of how I size, because otherwise they would be even bigger, there'd be massive uh, amounts of capital used with just a handful of positions. Well, I, I recently interviewed Peter Brandt, who, who I know you know of. Uh, yeah. He's also a trend follower type, uh, and uh, he risks even less per initial position. He'll, he'll risk about a third of a percent on a, on a starting position. So, so, I mean, it just goes to show. I mean, his track record speeds for itself. I think he's averaged uh, 40 something like 42% annual gains over 29 years. Yeah, it's uh, incredible. It goes to show that, you know, you could trade small and still win big. In fact, he, he even said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he said, trade big, lose big, trade small, win big. That was a phrase that he lives by. That's right. And, and, and you see, the, and the other way to look at this is to really think, and in fact, this may even be uh, one of his uh, things as well that I got from him about, you know, you have to, trade or position size like your worst drawdown is always ahead of you yes i mean that and that's absolutely what i'm doing with this because the way i look at it you know you use you use an example like that first one we're buying something at 20 bucks the stop is at 18. people will say to me oh you wait for a close below your level until 
you uh, and then you get out at the next open. Well, what if it goes right through there? You're losing even more. It's like, well, yeah, okay, let's do the math on that. Let's let's work out what if it went through. What if the stock got citroned and we <laughs> it it slides through and I'm sitting there watching it diligently waiting for the close. It closes at sixteen. So I'm then going to get out at the next day's open and then it gaps again. The bastards reiterate their call and then it gaps again down to 12. Okay, I'm now down. This thing is, well, I'm not down 40%. The stock is down 40%. That's the key. The stock is down 40%. How much have I lost? Well, it was risking half a percent with a stop 10% away. Now it's down 40%. I've lost 2%. Now, if you can take a hit on a single stock of 40% and the most damage it does is 2% of your portfolio, could you live with that? I could. That absolutely helps you sleep at night. I mean, that that's how you have to think of it. And if you really want to get into worst case scenarios, because the worst case is the worst case. It's never, uh, you know, the, I say the most you can lose is the most you can lose because people always, whenever they say, well, the most I could lose is, and they never say what actually is the worst you could lose. They say the most they want to lose. <laughs> but the worst you could, yeah, the most you could lose. Well, what if that happened to all of your positions? What if it happened to four or five? I mean, something horrendous would have had to have happened out there in the world. But, you know, at any one point, the total open risk based on the way I size positions here, I typically have between 6 to 8% of the portfolio. So that's why I say, listen, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, bring on a crash. I can take it. I'm just saying that if something like that were to happen, really, how much, how much would you lose? Could you take it? At the end of the day, you just want to know you're going to live to fight another day. Well, and that that really is it. I mean, this is a common theme I've heard from many people I've interviewed and just talked to over the years is that sometimes the 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 boring answer to long term success in the markets is just to survive, just to be here, just keep in the game, stay in the game, no matter what it takes, just don't get killed. And then eventually you'll find your way. Yes. I've heard so many people say that. And, and I mean, I, I think I'm living proof that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to, to finish off um, the, the idea of, of position sizing, I, I want to just kind of finish with this point about how I think that the hardest thing for people who have trouble with trend following uh, with relating to position size is after they've had that fifth or sixth or seventh consecutive loss. It's like putting on that eighth trade at the same size you've always been putting on. I, f I feel like that causes people trouble. And, and that's when they either want to, okay, well, I can't lose eight times in a row, so I'm going to triple my size on this trade. Or they go the complete other way and be like, I'm not even going to take this trade anymore. I can't risk another 1% of my portfolio or whatever the number is. And then you'll be like the guys in the marble game in the Van Tharp thing. You know? <laughs> I know a winner's coming. I go, I'm going to make this one a big one. Exactly. Now, the, uh, the other, uh, I think the second hardest thing for trend followers, and, and I'm curious on your take on this, is they look at the numbers, they see uh, uh, successful guys and girls in the business who've been around a long time that are putting up numbers in the neighborhood of, let's say, 20% annualized returns over a long-term career. People like John Henry and people like uh, Dunn Capital, famous trend following guys like that. 
So they think that when they get in a trend following that they think that their their average their return each year is going to be, you know, around 20% plus or minus 5 or whatever the case may be. They have a hard time wrapping their head around the fact that you might have three years in a row where you may you you make plus or minus three percent, and then that fourth year you make ninety percent. Oh yeah, and that's how you arrive at those averages. But people have they either can't sit through those three years of of single digit up or down returns, and then have one blowout year, or they, they you know they they just can't handle that. They they want more steady returns, and that's just you know you're not going to get that in trend following. It's, or you could get it, but it's really really hard. Yeah, and that's definitely the case. I mean, that's all, uh, you know, entirely um, futures and diversified uh, portfolio of futures where it might be a quarter rates, commodities, uh, equity indices, you know, there's uh, and FX. And um, yeah, you, for, for most people who are using those, especially institutions, I almost feel like it's, um, it's almost like a... a an insurance thing for them because some of them seem to correlate it with those strategies do very well in uh, poor market conditions for equities, you know, that, and and obviously 08 is a great example of that when those strategies all did very well. And to your point where, you know, you could have had mediocre returns and then suddenly you have like one massive year and you have to be in for that year in order to have made up for those losses. And then they struggled after that too. And then they've started coming back again. And, you know, it's, um, yeah, that's something uh, I'm going to eventually get to be a a CTA as well, but that's, uh, that's a little bit further away for me now. But for the moment, I've made it that I'm just concentrating on um, trend following in stocks. You know, that makes you a little bit uh, unique, I think, out there in the world. Uh, the majority of true trend followers and traders who identify themselves as trend followers tend to operate in futures and forex. Yeah. And I I, I, I imagine that's probably because they like to, to go both long and short. And in the stock market, a trend following strategy is much harder to execute on the short side. Definitely. And I mean, even... Even the CTAs will tell you that the short side for them doesn't necessarily uh, make a huge amount of money for them, but it probably has the effect of smoothing returns, shall we say, or the or the volatility uh, that you might otherwise have uh, if you were just uh, long only. The short side doesn't actually contribute a lot for them. For stocks. I've just never found a way to consistently make money shorting stocks. It's such a hard game. It really it is. It is. It's just a completely different dynamic. It's just not as simple as saying, oh, well, just, just do what you do in that direction. Do it in this direction. It doesn't work like that. They move, they move in different ways. They're subject to different uh, volatility. And um, it's much easier for me to, uh, especially if it's something that, where you want to manage money for others, it creates other issues where some people aren't comfortable with it or understanding it. And it's much easier for me to simply say, well, you know what, it doesn't actually contribute a lot to the strategy anyway. So let's just be long only uh, trend following stocks. And if, uh, if we go through, if we eventually have a huge correction and we all get to shave our beards <laughs> and we, and we have a bear market. That's a shout out to Jesse Felder, by the way. I just then, uh, then 
then fine. That that's okay. It just means we'll there won't be very many opportunities left. We'll we'll be mostly already out of uh, a lot of names and uh, be in cash, and that's okay because that's the whole thing. To your point earlier about you know just about surviving, the big thing I try to sell to prospective clients, my RIA is. It's it's more about avoiding the worst of the downturn. You know, everyone just focuses about getting the upside. All I'm trying to do is capture most of the upside, but avoid the worst of the downturn. We just even we just haven't even had a chance to see the downturn yet. Well, John, the nice way that you're doing it now, or the nice thing about the way you're doing it is, when the eventual bear market hits, and and we all know one is going to come. It, we don't know if it's going to start next week, next month, or next year, but it's it's coming. It always does. Sure. Uh, when it comes for you. Man, you, you can just, just go on an extended vacation somewhere, right? You can just take a few months off, go out to Barbados or the Caribbean somewhere and just chill. Uh, I, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to see about that. <laughs> see how long it lasts. Coming up after this break, John shares with us some of the painful but necessary lessons he's learned from his failures. And we also get into how he manages open risk in his portfolio as well as a subtle mind trick that helps him avoid taking profits too early. Stay with us. The StockTwits Must Follow podcast is brought to you by StockTwits, the online community for active investors and traders to engage with other market participants in a fun and supportive virtual trading floor. Share and discover trading ideas, charts, breaking news, and links to smart blogs while building your virtual team and your own network of thoughtful mentors. To learn more, visit StockTwist.com and sign up free today. Let, let me think of all the examples of where I think I've learned from failing. I mean, right at the very beginning, when I was in that job and I started very young and I was only 18 and I'm in the back office and I was trading on the side and uh, this is summer of 87 and we all know what's coming. And in the, well, I didn't at the time, but uh, in, the, in the UK back then, they used to trade on account, as in they used to have a two-week settlement period. So for a, an entire two-week period would have the same single settlement date. So what would happen is, if you imagine the first two weeks of August, all those trade dates would have the same single settlement date like a week or so later uh, after that period's ended. So what that would encourage or, or allow to happen is speculative young men like me would then, and especially in a bull market like that, would uh, buy something in the hope that it goes up before you need to settle the trade. And, um, and then you would sell it take the profit it was like an extra income for me and it was fantastic until you can tell what happens well is it was this like a form of of added leverage is that what you were doing you were taking your capital and really trading it as if you were had 10 times that much i'm not sure i was able to that much you could you could literally i, I mean i i did to a certain extent yes and and this is stuff that uh, after having done that stuff at college uh, with that assignment where I did particularly well making money, it's like I, I then mistakenly got to, it's almost the worst thing that can happen to have early success. Because if you haven't failed yet, you're going to fail hard. 
you know that's the, I, I see that now if you ever have a portfolio manager who hasn't yet been through a bear market or hasn't experienced failure at some point then you don't want to be invested with him when he experiences it for the first time ever and I've had a lot of failure that is why I feel I know what I know I don't say I know everything uh, but I I know what works for me I've seen enough through my own trading what does and doesn't work and I've seen it through uh, trading on behalf of hedge funds and institutions and for working for PMs too you get to see all of that and and that's all over the course of many years and that thing back I mean back in 87 I mean, I'm 18, and um, I'm trading, trading stuff on the side, taking any profit without ever having to settle something, just the most ridiculous form of trading. And then uh, you do it the week of the crash, just massive, massive loss. The settlement date is looming. What are you going to do? You don't have the money. You can't meet the bill when it's going to come. So what do you do? Oh, let's just play again. And and try and get it back. It's down a lot. I'm not sure what why this crash happened. It's probably, you know, it doesn't make sense to me, so I'll just buy it. And then it will go down some more. Okay, now I just can't afford for this to get any worse. So then I'll sell it. So then it goes up. And then, okay, now it's doing what I thought it was going to do last week. And so then I buy some more. And then it goes down again. I, I, I mean, I've made every single mistake there is to make. I probably will make some of them again in the future. I'm sure I will. People make mistakes. But I'm now in a position many, many, many years later where, like we talked about, about um, living to fight another day, I know that if and when these things happen to me, uh, that's okay. I can survive it. You know, your, your settlement trades story is eerily reminiscent of uh, the trader who was averaging down and getting crushed in Nikkei futures who ultimately brought down the Barings Bank. Yes. What was his name? I, I remember the movie and he was played by Liam Neeson or Nick, Nick Leeson. Nick Leeson was a trader. No, he was played by, um, no, you, you're thinking of uh, I have, I have it backwards. another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, but I listen. I was on. Uh, I was trading when all that happened. That's when I was doing my Japanese trading and having calls from PMs on a Sunday after Sunday afternoon about what exposure do we have because of what's going to happen the next day. Oh. And uh, that was that was crazy. And we did have a position out with bearings, but it was a it was a an order that. Uh, had a limit on it that had no chance of executing and so it was like fine just cancel that order we didn't have any exposure with them i mean that was a big uh, big deal well i'm, I'm curious uh, on your take on, on a phrase or a phrase that i often repeat to people is that it's, it's one thing to learn trading to be successful it's one thing to learn a strategy that you can execute that's all well and good but until you've learned and experienced every possible way that you can lose until you've actually done that you're never going to be a long-term successful trader that I believe that in my core how do, how do you feel about that yeah I I mean I've see this is the funny thing that I'm not sure how people would take this but if I if I kind of list all the if I went through all the things that 
I'm not saying they don't work, but they don't work for me. But they're all things that I used to do. So when people see me talking about how and why I don't use divergences or how and why I don't do this or do that or why I don't call tops anymore or why I don't – it's because at some point I probably used to do all those things. And when I'm talking to you, when I'm talking to people out there, I'm also saying it to myself. A lot of what I do on social media is a form of uh, reinforcing my own process and reaffirming what I believe. You know, and I, and I know some people get tired of some of the cliched uh, study hashtag uh, uh, and, and, and stuff like that, of always hearing the same things or Paul Tudor Jones quotes and stuff like that. But for my part, it's, you know, when people accuse you of preaching about trend following, it's really, I'm saying it to myself. I mean, I, I do stuff like that a lot here in my office. It sounds crazy, but I will sometimes think aloud and talk to myself about a problem because it's my way of getting my thoughts out and trying to express something in the best possible way to dilute it down to a single thought or process that encapsulates everything it is I'm trying to harness. Well, you know, uh, our mutual friend Barry Ritholtz uh, is often saying that the, the reason why he blogs is so that he could learn what he knows. And I think that's a lot of what you're saying. Absolutely. And, and I went through a lot of that when I first started writing the blog in early 2013, that it was, it was about putting you know, what about exits or about holding through earnings or about, you know, how and why I use stops. And it's a great process to do that. Is I, I mean, that's what I, it's why I now do the, I do a similar thing with the um, subscriber service I have now. If it's a, if it's a process, if it was something that was already part of my process, but I can continue to do that then for others through that, then, then why not? You know, that's what I do there. And you do learn so much in putting it down because it's some of the subjects is like, well, I know what I do, but why is it I do that? You know, have I ever really thought about it? And in most cases I can, but it's, um, it, it's a good process to have to actually sit down and put it down in words. That's kind of my, I don't literally keep a, a trading journal, but I feel like that's my way of doing it right and your and your failures are fertile ground for the things for you to write about that you in turn learn from absolutely going back to um 87 at the time it was all the money in the world to me i mean it but it, it, it was absolutely nothing but it but it was all the money in the world at the time because i hardly earned anything it was like a third of my annual salary i'd wow. lost in in a week or something and and it crushed me and, and it's like i'd I didn't want to trade again for like another two years before I, I got into stuff again. But then years later with um, stuff with the prop trading at Lehman and, you know, it, it's very easy for people to be cynical about that kind of arena as well when they say, well, it's not even your money, you know, it doesn't matter. Well, I just wasn't one of those kind of traders. I was someone who was very conscientious. Uh, about that and it was my livelihood because I knew if you did well you get paid if you don't you don't get paid and and I took it that seriously I don't subscribe to this thing of when it's not your money that it's somehow easier to trade with it and it's and it's gambling 
to me, when it's not your money, it's even more important. I agree totally. Yeah, you know, to to I take that now as an investment advisor with my my own advisory, I take that responsibility incredibly seriously. That someone's had that faith to be able to uh, put money with you, um, but it also can't be such a a thing that it's then a burden for you to not be able to do what you would do. And and that's where having a strategy and having rules-based things um, is such a help. Well, John, at the risk of encouraging people to purposely lose money, <laughs> are there uh, two or three things that you could point to that as painful as they are and as shitty as the experience is, it, these are some failure things that are absolutely important for any trader to experience at least once or twice in their in their career. Are there any things you think that you just have to do it? You have to get through it. Uh, what that I would willingly say for someone to do in order to experience it, I'm not. I'm not sure I could do that. I, I mean, I would say the the one thing more than anything that can help you at least lessen the blow of these things when it happens is position sizing. You know, because as we've already discussed, that's, you know, I've seen someone have a winning system and make it a losing one because of how they sized. And then they'll make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, that didn't work. And it's no, it's not that the system was broken. It's how you traded it. It's how you sized the position. You just didn't understand risk. You didn't manage your risk of ruin. You know, I, I used to think just like the Peter Brandt thing of your worst drawdown always being ahead of you. I mean, I've I've blown up in the past. I mean, it's a long time ago now, but I've blown up. I've lost everything. And if someone then said to me, oh, what is it you lost everything on? Well, and it was, well, it was just some random Tuesday in, in May of some year, and it wasn't even an event. You know, how stupid do you feel? You, some people might think, well, at least if it was in the crash, you could say, well, that kind of caught everyone out, so that's okay but it's still not okay to blow up. So if you're risking such that just a reasonable pullback or drawdown can happen and it wipes you out, then you are way, way over your head. You need to go back to the example we discussed earlier where I'm sizing in such a way that I can have something drop 40% and what did it do? It, the impact to my account was 2%. I can live with that. I can sleep at night. You need to you need to get to that point. Work out if all these bad things happened, what would be the impact to me? Work out what's the worst you would want to experience. Reverse engineer it back to then working out, well, hang on a minute, that means I'd only be risking a quarter or a half a percent. There you go. Now you got it. Now you got it. That's the secret sauce right there. Yeah, that's it. Now you're, and yet you'll then say, well, if I do that, I might only be able to make 10 or 12% in a year. Well, listen, buddy, you make 10 or 12% a year every year on average, you'll be crushing it. <laughs> you'll be one of the best PMs out there. That's, I mean, that's all you need. You get to um, double digit returns, annual average returns over the rest of your lifetime. That's all you need. You don't need to be swinging for the fences, half a percent risk is enough for me and that's what's produced the returns and drawdowns of what people see me uh, put up there on my uh, market fi thing and, and that's enough volatility for me. 
Well, to to finish up this riff on failure, I, I think uh, I, I loved what you said about how if you come across a portfolio manager or a hedge fund manager or just a, a large trader who, uh, for one reason or another, just has not yet experienced a big drawdown or any kind of failure, that's the guy you need to be afraid of. I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I love that that concept. So uh, what do you think the uh, the odds are in our lifetime that we'll see uh, aspiring hedge fund managers and traders uh, in their due diligence documents uh, descri- vividly describing their, their failures? Yeah, it won't, <laughs> it won't happen, will it? I <laughs> It just, it's, you know, that's so funny though. I mean, I, I do actually remember one time on the prop desk at Lehman, I think there was a guy we were interviewing and, um, one of the guys, one of my colleagues was suspicious of the fact that the guy talked a lot about his wins and his biggest win was much bigger than his biggest loss. And he said, yeah, that's just, that's just not right. That's not normal. Because, because in, in that, and to be fair, in that world of shorter term prop trading, he, he was right. The typical experience was you would have smaller wins, but plenty of them, uh, but you would have the occasional big loss. And now my, my thing is the exact opposite. You know, so now I probably wouldn't interview very well if I went back there and, you know, they talked about, so tell us some of, about some of your best and worst <laughs> trades, you know, but yeah, but people remember, remember the losses or at least they should and those should be the ones you learn from because uh, the danger is otherwise people with high win rates, they look at the losses and say, oh yeah, I just got unlucky. I've uh, I've always thought that uh, every trade offers a lesson, every loss offers a lesson, every win offers a lesson. But the problem is, the lessons that we often learn in our big wins, we we learn the wrong lesson. We learn the lesson of, oh, it's okay to occasionally take a larger position because my gut tells me so. And look, it worked out. Look at this huge win I had. I should do that more often. Yeah. But I but I feel like in the losses. We generally do learn the right lesson if we're willing, if we're open to receiving it. I think uh, you know you you have that huge painful loss and that impairs your portfolio and and per, you know permanently lessens your buying power or whatever the case may be. That's a lesson that sticks with you because uh, it's a painful experience and really altered things for you. Yeah, and that's why, as strange as it sounds, it's actually better to. It, it's better to have taken a trade you shouldn't have than to miss a trade you should have, should have taken. Uh, what I mean, I maybe didn't phrase it well, but what I mean by that is because if you lose, fine, I shouldn't have taken that signal, I take it, fine. You, as long as you then obey your stop loss, you're out. The worst thing is not taking a signal. Because that's the one that you don't know how big that could have been. That could have been, and then what are you going to do about it? Now you've missed it. Now it's going. That could have been the winner that paid for all the other losses. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the cardinal sin and trend following right there is missing the one big win that makes your year, makes your month, whatever the case may be. All it takes is missing one of those trades and your whole, all your numbers are fucked. (laughs) Yeah, and that's, and. Uh, that's the whole. It's taking the signals and letting them then run, you know. And Ivanhoff wrote a fantastic piece about, you know, about getting a. If you're going to ever get a hundred percent winner, 
you probably needed to have it pull back 20% on you on the way. You know, that you're not going to get uh, winners of 100, 150, 200% without at some point having a huge drawdown on the way. And it's, all- I would, I would argue for those kind of gains, you need even more than a 20% drawdown. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've, I mean, I've been, I've managed to have a couple that have been uh, during their, uh, on, on the service I have there, I've had a couple that I think got to over a hundred, but then they had their pullback and then it kind of got me out for um, less than that. And it's, that is so hard for, for people to do. People hate seeing something pull back on them and feel like they're giving back those profits. Yeah, and actually, I I should also say that I don't even I try now to avoid saying that I'm taking profits because I think it makes you think of it in the wrong way. I, I should say I don't take profits; I take exits because that's really what it is. You're if you if you say you're taking profit, then it infers that you're somehow reacting to the position of your P and L, and it should never be that. It should just be. You're taking an exit signal, no matter what the P and L is. Yeah, you know that is this actually a fantastic uh, concept you have here, and uh, it's making me think that a guy or a girl who says that I'm taking profits, they're maybe they're setting themselves up to think that this is the ideal spot to take a profit. They're they're somehow they're somehow maximizing their profits and 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 picking the the right spots. But I mean, I mean it, that's in a lot of ways that's just a guessing game. It really is. I know. It's like, what if you said, you know, they should phrase it the other way. Okay, I'm deciding I don't want to make any more money from this. <laughs> I'm tired of making money. I'm out. That's another way of looking at it. <laughs> I'm t- I don't want, I want to limit my gains at this point. Or, oh, it, it sounds much better to say, yeah, I'm, I'm taking profit. Because we're taught that that's the right thing to do. You know, that's what could, uh, what's, what's better than making that, register ring and and hearing that sound and like yep i've got it you know but it really it really should be that you're i think it was it's psychologically it's more helpful to not talk in terms of profit or loss but really about uh, taking exits well you know it reminds me that of that old saw that any any longtime trend follower will vehemently disagree with uh and that being no one ever goes broke taking profits Oh, I hate that one. I absolutely hate that. Yes, you will if you also don't take losses, if you don't cut your losses. Exactly. That phrase uh, omits the most important part, and that's the loss side. I'll tell you, there's one other thing I would tell you that when I I, I produce um, the part of the uh, Alpha Capture subscriber service I do on MarketFire, I produce this portfolio table of all our open positions. And on it, it would just show the uh, it would show the ticker. It would show the last price, where our current stop is, and what the weight is within the portfolio and the open risk. Nowhere on it will it show where we bought it or how much we are currently making or losing on it. And because that is how I look at the portfolio when I look at it for the money I manage for clients, because I noticed that when I was aware of how much I'm making or losing, it would make me then view that chart in a different way because I would then be subject to that bias of wanting to take that profit. You see it and it's so big and juicy and it's like, oh God, I wish I could just take that. Oh, very interesting. 
but I totally removed that off there. So now the only way, the only like in the market fire service, the only reason I know how much I'm actually making on since I bought it is because they have a table there that shows it. But in what I do for uh, subs in the separate thing that I do there and what I do for my clients, I, I don't ever show how much I'm making or losing on it for how I manage the portfolio. So that's, so that's fantastic. All you care about when you're looking at your positions is you only care about your open risk from exactly. where the market is right now to where your stop is. That's all you care about. Yeah, so I'll have my, say, dozen positions and the spread of where they currently are. I mean, one could be down 5%, one could be up 50, one could be up 22, one could be up 4. I don't know or I don't look at it. I make it that every single one of them, all I see is in relation to where it's currently trading, where is it stopped? So, so that begs the question then, when you're sitting in a huge winner, just a stock that's just gone one way, rocket ship higher, and your stop is now significantly left in the dust, yeah. and you're, you're faced with, by, by your measure, uh, very large open risk. Yes. Does that, does that cause you trouble, or how, how do you deal with that? Well, in something that does move specifically that quickly, it would then make me switch over to an ATR stop because I typically use um, uh, stops that might be a confluence of previous consolidation area. It might be where the 50-day is. I don't use any of them individually as a signal, um, but a break of those and support might be my exit. When something goes parabolic, those are suddenly useless. The thing is just running away the ma's are lagging the only thing that can keep up with the action is having an atr stop and as i said previously very often the atr for me typically is close to where i would naturally have the stop um, anyway confirming an invalidation of the trend so now it then just becomes a volatility thing it makes it catch up but yeah i'm happy to then leave that open and people have a problem with that. It's like they see it running away. It's They're screaming at you to take profits, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've just got to give it time. You've just got to give it time to settle down, let it wait till we uh, can move it a little closer. Uh, if you move too close too early, it's like you're asking to be hit. I mean, if you're going to be that – it's just being undisciplined about it. You might as well just get out and take it. But I've I've got one guy who, after I had got out because I got a signal, he he stayed in anyway on um, I think it was Anacor, and he caught that additional move, which is phenomenal, just fantastic for him. And now it's on a ATR stop, and it's still in, and it's still kind of edging up, bobbing around. It's not really doing much, but you just got to be patient. You, you just got to sit. There was a similar thing with Amazon. Amazon is now on a ATR stop for me. You know, it had a big pop and it's, I mean, it, it's probably sitting pretty close to the action, but yeah, that, that, that's all I do. I mean, that's, that's a real tough thing for having that patience, but the open risk then can be from, like I, I said that I start where it's only half a percent. Well, in theory, the open risk could then get up to, say, 1.5% for a single position until you have an opportunity to bring that stop closer. But until you do, it just has to stay that way. 
Well, I hate to keep bringing up Peter Brandt because this is not an interview about Peter Brandt, but uh, but <laughs> that reminds me of another thing that he had said and that uh, that I found surprising and, and you are essentially reiterating it here is that he said the hardest thing for him is managing that trade that immediately does exactly what he thought it was going to do. Yeah. That immediately goes in his favor and just really takes off. He says those are the hardest trades for him to manage. And, and in a lot of ways, you're saying the same thing. You're saying it in a different way, but... Yeah, I mean, it's you're dealing with the the emotion of of seeing a very large open profit and a very large uh, now a very large stop a stop very far away from where the market is, and that's uh, you know psychologically for some that could be uh, a tough tough to deal with. I mean, it's a good yeah. problem to have. We'll all agree it's a good problem to have, but it's a problem nonetheless. Because there can be a time element to it of um, just needing to give it time to to settle down. It would be it would be very rare for it to pull back immediately all the way back to where it came from and if it did then so be it it obviously was a false move anyway uh, only by breaking your rules could you have ever got out you know with, with more than that and that's a slippery slope once you start doing that because like you'd said before once you once you uh, make an error but it somehow pays off or you do something you're not supposed to do you you kind of feel uh, reinforced and think well it worked last time so i'll do it again yep that's very dangerous well john i i love uh your strategy in stocks and as i mentioned before you are a little bit unique as a dedicated trend follower in the stock space and uh, i may have told you this before but i'll tell you again that uh, you know, as my position at StockTwits, I, I meet a lot of new traders, new to the business. And, and the one question I get an, a, lo uh, a lot is, who are people I should follow? And what are some strategies that I, that I could learn about and, and, you know, try to cut my teeth in the markets? And, and every time, John, I bring up your name, I say, John Borman, check this guy out. He's a low touch strategy. It's, if you spend some time studying what he does, anybody can do it. You could even have a full-time job while, while learning how to trade and doing a strategy like what John does. There's so much to learn from that about patience, about position sizing, about understanding the dynamics of, of, of big winners in the market. I mean, that's where the great fortunes are always made, are in the big winners. And if you study a trend-following strategy, you get to understand how that works. So I, I'm always pointing people in your direction. I, I And I know that, and I'm very grateful for that. You know, that that was one of the things that in the last job I had before I uh, left out left to go out on my own, you know, I'd be sitting there watching everything on uh, stock twits and I'd be seeing uh, people like Brian Shannon, Greg Harmon, JC. It's like these these are the guys I'm looking at and 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 to be honest, I was probably a, a little jealous because I'm sitting there at a broker the sell side with no audience, no voice and it really made me feel like, you know, this is what I should be doing. I I could I could be doing this, I could be out there and uh, it's about so it was not necessarily about seeking the limelight or anything or maybe recognition, but it was really about um, it's just a, a good way to share your thought process. And it's it's been a great community for me to do that. And I think what it really takes to do well, just as those guys have, and I've been fortunate, I've had a lot of people following me. People just see recognize people who are consistent if you're consistent in your message 
and they follow you for long enough and they see you weather little downturns and we haven't yet had a full correction but when we do that's going to be another great test who's still going to be there on the other side of it and that's you, you can probably already predict who those people are going to be because right. they're the ones that have a consistent process and a method and they reiterate that every day so so this brings me to another thing i wanted to bring up it's kind of a, a fun topic but uh uh you know you mentioned that you saw guys like brian shannon and jc and greg Harmon out there putting themselves out there and sharing ideas and while you know you're seeing the good side of it there's also the depending on your point of view there's the fun or maybe not so fun downside of that i i watch kind of sometimes just sitting back with my hands on my uh, sitting on my hands smirking when i see at any time we have a little bit of a pullback in the market, when I see somebody, some smart ass on social media come and try to troll guys like you, <laughs> guys like you that are sitting in a long position that's all of a sudden getting hurt, even though you're still up 60% in the stock, but maybe just pulled off significantly off his highs, you'll see some amateur uh, on Twitter or stock twits, uh, you know, start, uh, you know, hey, hey, John Borman, how's that, uh, how's that long trade working out for you? And I see this all the time, and I, I know that, it bothers you from time to time, but for the most part, you have a pretty good sense of humor about it. I've I've got uh, I've gotten better at handling it. I, I will say in that in that first year, you know, because I've only been doing this or on there, it was only in early 2013, and um, it's a very, I mean, doing anything in the market. It kind of reminds me you first join a, a broker when you're on the floor, you know, it's um, on the trading floor or something like that. It's a bit of a gladiatorial environment and, and people, that arena, and people want to see what you're made of. And so even when I first started blogging, I was, I know I probably had sharp elbows and, and uh, was probably pretty punchy <laughs> in delivering my message because you kind of have to say, hey, I'm here. Like, you know, I said this, I said that. I mean, and then after a while... I didn't need to do that so much. You know, you, you then had the light uh, shone on you and, and, and it's okay. But yeah, I still get, uh, I, I'll get the odd thing here and there. It depends what kind of mood I'm in if I want to go back. <laughs> if I'm feeling particularly okay about it, I might kind of come back with some witty repost or something like that well, but uh, I, I always enjoy it when you do but uh it's it's uh, when i when i do see it happen i often will just sit there and a little quiet smirk to myself i'm like i can't wait till john sees this <laughs> <laughs> well john hey listen this has been a great talk i hope fingers crossed i'm going to see you in, in san diego at Stocktoberfest this october yes i'm definitely going to be there okay well that's good so we'll have uh, we'll be able to continue our talks there and uh Many of the uh, guys that you mentioned uh, will probably be there as well. So uh, we'll, we'll reconvene our annual roundtable uh, over cigars and beers at the Del Patio back there. Awesome. <laughs> All right, John, this was fun. Thanks so much. And uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, keep it going. All right. Cheers. This has been the Must Follow podcast hosted by Sean McLaughlin, a.k.a. Chicago Sean. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud. And please give us a review. Let us know what you thought and let us know who you'd like to hear in the future. Thanks for listening.